welcome to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about designing a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. Today I'm talking with John Bechtold, teacher and theater innovator, about the rewards and challenges of helping teens get their vision to the stage, the immersive theater process, and the transformational nature of the arts. The secret is having everybody in the room set clear goals, and then getting to work. John Bechtel, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about the um, the nexus of community, uh, work, and creativity. So you can start with any of those and talk a little bit about what it is you do. Great. Thank you. Um, I think I'll start with work since it kind of brings the other two uh, together, which is probably something that I'll say more about as the interview goes on. I live and work in Western Massachusetts. Uh, during the academic year, I am the theater teacher and performing arts department head for the Amherst Public Schools, and I mostly concentrate my teaching in the high school world there. And in the summertime, I run a summer arts program called DASAC, which is a interdisciplinary uh, visual and performing arts uh, summer program that is very progressive and and a little weird and um, <laughs> uh, works with about a couple hundred kids each summer and a delightful staff uh, in all those fields. So that, that's the, the kind of holding spot for a lot of things because out of uh, those two jobs, that means I get to spend my uh, full calendar year with young people in the arts. And it's a pretty amazing place, not only to foster that kind of presence and energy and, and desire to make things it, with people that age. But it's also one of the finest um, venues I found for a really authentic community, really meaningful, thoughtful community. Um, there's a lot that happens, I think, when you are uh, an emerging adult but aren't yet pummeled by uh, a lot of adulthood. You can still really be an idealist. And I think one thing I take away from a lot of my time in my work is wanting to preserve that sense of idealism in myself. And I probably have a good situation to keep that propelling forward. Mm. Um, when you have those things in place, then the creative component and the artistic work just comes along for the ride real easily. Mm. Mm. So what kind of, um, what kind of works do you do with the summer program? How does that work? Sure. Uh, well, DASAC, um, works across about a dozen different uh, well, what we call studios or disciplines, basically. Anything from drawing and animation and video to theater and music and dance and um, plenty in between. And the structure of the place is set up so that we use 11 through 16-year-olds, which often is uh, suggested to not be uh, developmentally appropriate, I should say. A lot of schools uh, would advise against that kind of a model at the ranges are too wide. What we found is the exact opposite, that they kind of spur incredible things out of each other. Um, and that becomes part of the secret sauce for this. So we very intentionally make sure that the ages and um, interests and aptitudes of campers stay pretty mixed uh, when we're making project groups, but we also really endow them with a lot of choice about what they do and when. So they have a lot of agency. There's a lot of studios. We use the studios as defining frameworks, but we play in and among them all the time. So a lot of the work that comes out of the program is getting these kids in this heterogeneous group uh, of age and ability to make 
big multidisciplinary works together. That's some of the most common things that we do. Certainly not the only one, but I call it a hallmark. And and then so the the two things that come up. Um, the first is congratulations. That's a lot of trust, <laughs> and that's amazing. <laughs> and the second is do do the studios tend to realize their goals by the end of the summer or it is it yeah it's very ambitious <laughs> yeah i think they do i mean we we really love to balance uh process and product and on staff we talk a lot about what that balance should be like uh in this kind of world that we're trying to make for them and uh, the good thing that kind of holds us in place is that there is an end product for all these things. There's a big presentational thing that everyone does at the end of the, the session, which also means that we have a deadline mm. and work towards that. So there is that framework that kind of guarantees we have to finish and really have something to show and share. And as far as the goals of our studios and work to complete work of that scale is one of the major ones. The other major goal of the studio is just to help foster community and bring both novices and kids that realize they want to be there for the rest of their lives in the studio in together. Um, and that that just is so in the whole cloth of the place that we don't even consider it a goal. It's just a, a thing that we do. Um, what are some of the challenges of putting together a program like this? Um, I think the key challenge is, is the one uh, – that sits around humans, it, uh, getting the right staff is always the challenge. It's a very happy challenge, I should add, but um, DASAC is uh, a place that has a certain kind of spirit that gets very recognizable, but that spirit is just born out of the presences uh, and attitudes of the people that work there. So really finding the right people is, is huge. It's just like casting in a play. Like that, That's a huge part of the job, mm. and you do it right away. Are you old enough that um, people have – not you personally. Is DASAC old enough that um, people who went through the program are old enough to start working there? Is that kind of a feeder or do they really just go into the world and – Yeah. Um, yeah, DASAC is, is old enough that um, some of the people uh, that made this camp, invented this camp, uh, now send their kids to it. Oh, wow. So it, it's – and – there's certainly um, any number of campers that find themselves going up a ladder and turning into counselors and staff as well over the years. Um, there's some really beautiful long lines that come out of that. And um, and I now have been there long enough that I've gotten to see a camper that I met when she was 11 turn into this amazing CIT and then become a counselor for like six, seven years after. And just that whole line mm. is just so uh, personally just fulfilling to see. But as a pedagogical idea, to have someone grow and change in one place in such a deep way for that length is really cool. Right, right. Is it an overnight camp or a day camp? No, um, and I would actually say that's another actually very important thing. It's a day camp, which right. means campers go home happy and exhausted, um, but then we get to go to dinner together at the dining hall and then go back to the studios and make our own work. Oh. Uh, and get all the crazy stuff that we do the next day. And so by night, it's kind of a commune of these incredibly gifted people that are also very dedicated to the classes they're teaching the next day. So we use the nights to play with ourselves, bring the studios to life, um, do a lot of stupid shit, and <laughs> wake up the next morning and teach kids again. It's it's kind of a beautiful cycle. And if it was an overnight camp, that's wouldn't be able to exist right right and how long does it last is it like one group of kids all summer or is it every two weeks or month or 
Um, it's two three-week-long sessions for campers. Each session is okay. about 105 kids. Wow, that is a lot to get done in three weeks. That's amazing. Yeah, the time is another container for camp, and boy, it pressurizes a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what kind of learning curve do kids typically have? I mean, do they come with some of this training, or do they really start out, have to learn it, and then... Um, it, it's a huge mix. I mean, certainly we want to be an artistic home for campers that are really, um, already down that path and want a place where they can be taken seriously or find mentors and, uh, and even just great facilities to kind of grow with other people. So that's a huge part, but every summer we're introducing loads of kids to a pottery wheel to the first time or a dark room or an animation studio and you get to see their minds get blown. And so a <laughs> Art for us is just how do we? It's a it's act. It's an access question. How can we provide maximum access to as many kids as we can? Cool, cool. Oh, and what does DASAC stand for? Deerfield Academy Summer Arts Camp. What's your favorite part about it? My favorite part about it, I think it is that spirit uh, that is unmistakable, and it's. You can. It's something you, I think, really start to feel in the air. And and I say you by um, suggesting that pretty much anyone at camp would would say the same thing. It is this palpable feeling when camp is really kind of like become that big, vibrant, creative, bustling community um, that is just unmistakable. It's a little. Um, high energy. It's a little irreverent. It's a little weird, um, and it's incredibly beautiful. And I think I've gotten very attuned to um, hanging on to that uh, when it arrives in the summer because I think it's something that also charges me across the rest of the school year. Mm. Um, and how would you how would you want it to uh, to change? Because everything does change. How would you like to see it evolve? Sure. Um, well, camp does need to evolve to stay what it is. I, mm-hmm. That's something that we also believe that just needs to keep growing and transforming kind of organically. Um, we have re- really strong goals and principles. Our mission and objectives hasn't changed since day one back in 1991. So we know that that framework is really strong. So what we're more interested in is the expression of those goals. So we're interested in... Um, I think one of the challenges it is because it's partially also subsidized by Deerfield Academy since they own it, which is really cool. Mm. Um, it's cheaper than a lot of camps uh, for a similar run and similar level of access to facilities, but it's still expensive. It's still about a thousand bucks a kid to go per session. Mm. And um, making camp less cost prohibitive, I think, is one of the immediate things that we're working a lot at right now. Mm. Um, we're interested in. Uh, increasing the range of diversity of kids come not just socioeconomically, but also by race and ethnicity. Um, we're really interested in trying to find kids in rural towns a little bit more. Northampton and Amherst provide quite a number of kids, but just all these kids, um, and some of them do find us. That the thing they tell us is we love DASAC, not just because it's a great place, but it's because the only place I get to make art all year because my school doesn't have an arts program. Oh, love to find kids and that's a lot of, you know a lot of rural districts the arts as in many places get cut first right of course of course can you see any kind of outreach at the other times of the year or is it really a summer only it's going to stay that way 
I think given the intensity with which Deerfield Academy runs their academic year, there probably just isn't any physical room to make much happen during that time. So yeah, we're, we're kind of a brigadoon. We, we pop up and we disappear. <laughs> brigadoon camp, find it. <laughs> um, you kind of touched on, well, that, that's kind of, that kind of comp- comprises the community piece. What about regular, you know, rest of the year work for you? Sure. So outside of teaching in DASAC, I also am a theater maker and try to uh, get work in where I can, basically. Um, And I've realized more and more as I've gotten older, that's something I really care about. So um, around the Valley, I also make theater, as you well know, with Egg Tooth Productions a lot of the time, um, but also in any other kind of place I can kind of get my hands dirty. Uh, Right now, a lot of my work is focused on immersive theater, um, which really gets to take advantage, especially in Western Massachusetts, of the beauty of the spaces that we have, both the the built and the environmental ones, um, to create work with people. So right now, I'm in the middle of a piece with the Emily Dickinson Museum that I'm remounting um, that is a a walking headset piece with a cast of about 20 um, for two audience members at a time. Okay, so how does that work? What happens when... It is something that you buy a ticket through the museum and attend the museum that night for an appointed time. Then you are brought to a secret location, given a pair of headphones that have an MP3 track on them. And then you are sent off in a direction and you start walking. And eventually you run into someone and they turn. And when they look at you, every word that they're saying... um, shows up in your head. Everything is synced to those headphones. And what results is a kind of telepathy that you feel like you have an audience member for this person staring at you. Uh, And then becomes a walking tour kind of guided by these characters that kind of appear and disappear across the night until you end up back at the Dickinson homestead where there's a kind of culminating event. Cool. Uh, And are the characters real life people or are they from like fictional from the poems or... They are, um, by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, they are people that blend in with downtown Amherst as you walk through. So anyone walking down the street might be oh. an actor. Oh. appear out of the blue and suddenly you're connected to them. Oh. So it's meant to be a, a kind of an invisible play that you're in the middle of a public space having this intense experience, but anyone could walk by you and have no idea. Oh, that is interesting. And why, why two at a time? What, what's the logistics that require that? Sure. Um, well, my heart of hearts, I would love it to be one person at a time because I think there's such a value in having an experience that's unmitigated by someone else. And if you're with someone, you're always checking in a little bit. Do you want to do this? Is that cool? Oh, let's go over here. And your own first impulses get stifled. So I would say up front that, first of all, I'd, I really see this as a one-person piece in a lot of ways. Um, but um, there's a lot of value uh, in having two people. For one, there's a safety thing, uh, both a physical and uh, a social one. I think if you're walking through a downtown space, um, especially when you're not, um, you know, you're more clued into what's happening between your ears than what's happening out there. So it's nice to have that person. Yeah. Um, it also gives you someone to validate your experience with. Oh, yeah, of course. Which at the end of the show, people really want to talk about it with someone else and, um, and you can't talk during it. So listening to people talk, couples talk with each other at the end is so exciting. You know how sometimes you leave a play and just everyone's in the lobby, just asking where they're going to get coffee. Yeah. Um, and at the end of this, people are just like, just 
bubbling with the things that they have to share this other person. And that's really cool. So we, we've kept it with two people, I think, largely for those reasons. Uh, it's so cool. It's funny. I was thinking the other way, like, wouldn't you want to make it bigger? But I totally get it. Although you're right about the sharing piece, because the car ride on the way home from every piece of theater, that's... Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good stuff. Part of the show. <laughs> it really is. It really is. It's the it's sort of the dismount of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, that's very cool. Are you working on anything new right now? Or is that um, well, this piece that's in process? In, yeah, it's in process. It is a remount. Um, but as, as with anything that I've remounted, it, it grows and changes in its next run. But it really is this time, probably the last time I'm going to run it. Um, and I'm using it also as a research piece for the thing that more or less is going to replace it. I'm working with the museum to make something... Um, that might replace uh, some of their kind of app-based tours and create something a little more theatrical or immersive, basically, for someone that shows up at a museum and just wants to see what the place is about. Mm, mm, interesting. Are you working on other any other, like, plays or anything? Um, aside from that, right now, my head is in the school theater world, so we're, we're working on several things there. We'll put up three plays before December, and those have my... Three plays before December, casted, or are they classes? Um, cast. So, uh, three, three productions. Auditioned, yeah. casted, and produced before um, yeah, we'll December? Month, basically, we're, we're doing a checkoff play at the end of October. We're doing uh, a series of 10-minute plays with student directors in November, and then we're doing an immersive production of the Laramie Project in December. Wow. <laughs> we stay busy. You definitely stay busy. I mean, I remember what... I think when I was going to school, it was one play in the fall and a big musical in the spring. Listen. That was the same for me. That was it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's very cool. Um, Chekhov in a month with high schoolers? Uh, five weeks. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Which play? I, um, three Sisters. Okay. And... Um, yeah, they've, they've got this, uh, Chekhov is something that I've avoided doing in high school because I love it so deeply. Um, and it, it is so hard and so beautiful in so many ways, but, um, this was the year and I kind of knew it going in. So I'm excited. And did you, do you, do you audition and cast the first week or did you do it in the summer? Um, first week. So school just started on Wednesday. We just had our kind of info meeting on Friday. I'm going to auditions on Tuesday. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, okay, I'm blown away by that. <laughs> I am too. It's it's wild. It's it's a wild place. Wow. And then the the ten minute plays. How many of those will there be? Um, we'll do ten of those, uh, which means raising and nurturing ten student directors along with that. Um, that's another thing that we've really been aiming to do more is have more not just acting and tech work, but directing and playwriting work. And so this is a big incubator for that. They'll uh, work with me. I kind of mentor the 10 of them throughout the process. Um, they get some selection within the plays. I do most of the casting for them. They don't get to have a role in that too much. They're kind of handed a play and a cast and um, given a few preferences along the way. So that'll be a four or five week process too. Um, it's rapid fire, but it works. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, that is rapid fire. Wow. Okay. Um, and then what do you, do you have a plan for your immersive theater that you're allowed to say, or does that have to uh, develop? 
Oh, no, no. Um, I could say the concept. I was just sharing this with the kids. Uh, we're doing a production of the Laramie Project, which traditionally is done kind of a la Our Town, kind of bare-bone stage. Actors mostly stay uh, in pedestrian clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for us, one of the things that we got really interested in was that the play was a documentary piece, um, just developed all these out of all these interviews with about 50 to 60 times people from Laramie. So to... Uh, and to get the audience to have a passive role from hearing about the killing of Matthew Shepard and watching it come together, um, put it into this environment, they're going to have to actually go off in literal search of characters. Um, so they'll be going around the performing arts wing of the school where we'll have a bunch of miniature sets and um, hidden corners and other spaces where they have to find and meet people. And then they enter into the play that way and then are spoken to in first person as if they're the interviewer in the script. Oh, and wow. then back together, reassemble as a full group. So it's kind of a together, apart together format. And have you run this before? No, this is this is a, a new idea. Has it ever been done uh, as an interactive piece? Not that we know of. Um, okay. And we really felt like we, we had a good reason to do it this way. So I think we're the first. Yeah, wow. Wow. Um, yeah. So what are the, let me ask you this. So uh, what are the big challenges with this, with doing the high school work? Um, the high school is um, a challenge because there are a lot of extremes. Um, there are camper or campers. There are students uh, that um, you know are getting ready to apply to conservatory schools, and there are students that are like peeking their head in for the first time and are really nervous, and also have like a massive IEP and uh, a para educator with them, and then there's. Um, just the, the full swell of there's so many people involved. It can be a hard thing to manage. It can feel like chaos, I think, from a student's perspective before you feel like you land. So I think one of the big challenges is having a really strong kind of welcoming mat. Because once they're in, it tends to be great, but it can be really intimidating and challenging, I think, to find your foothold, especially if you're new. So I think that's a big challenge. As always, um, content and what you can and can't do, what you should or shouldn't be doing, um, figure out what your kind of mission is, like is, um, should we just be putting up Shakespeare? Do we have a social responsibility to be making certain kind of work? How do you gauge students in those questions? That's always, a, again, a ripe and interesting challenge, but an important one. Um, and then finally, just the lines of like trust and safety um, are always really huge too. We do a lot of student leadership work, especially within the, the tech side, which is great. But there's also um, safety and what peer leadership uh, brings, all the challenges there. So we spend a lot of time managing that so it works. Mm. Um, and then what about, um, so how does it work with kids that don't get a role? Is there a place for them? And Sure. Um, so one of the reasons why we do so many productions, we do about half a dozen productions a year, wow. is to guarantee more or less um, any kid that, we'll get you on at some point. And that's what we say in these meetings is that our goal, there will be people that will probably repeat presences on stage, but we also have this goal that everyone will get on stage who wants to at some point of the year. So kids that aren't cast in Three Sisters stand a much stronger chance of getting cast in briefs. And then mm. those that don't anything yet, learning project, they're going to get to walk right in. Mm. You know, so that, that kind of spirit is really important. Um, and that way that it takes some pressure off too. auditions aren't like quite as 
I don't know, as nasty as they could be. That's what I was thinking about. Um, and what's the what's the largest cast you're going to have for the year, probably? Um, it'll be the school musical, um, which we'll do in March. That has an open door policy. You show up on the first day and you're in the cast kind of thing. And I'm I'm guessing that we'll be in the like 80 to 90 range for that. Wow, okay. Uh, its peak a few years ago, the high, the largest cast I think we had for the musical was 126. Oh, so it can really swell. Wow. What what was that? What did you put on that had 126 people? <laughs> that was Aida. <laughs> that was wild. Oh, wow. It's wow. Yeah. Um, that, and that's like the new, that's the, uh, wasn't that just put on a couple of years ago, that version of Aida? Yeah, it's not that old. Yeah, yeah. that one. Wow. Yeah. Dang. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that'll that'll probably be the biggest one. The Laramie, I'm hoping, will be like forty to fifty actors. Okay. And what's your favorite thing to do of all these um, activities that you do with the students during the year? I love making immersive and devised work with them. Um, I think that's easily a favorite thing in large part because we really feel like we're putting our own stamp on something. We know that it's work that other schools aren't making. Um, we have a just a, a real sense of ownership over it since. We aren't only dealing with the content, but we're dealing with the form, and that just is so exciting. So, yeah, I think that that's just thrilling stuff, like making our own work and knowing that even at a high school level, you can make some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, and how did you first get into immersive theater? Uh, well, it was with Punch Drunk, um, your, your, your neighbors. <laughs> right now. Um, I was at grad school and met them at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, and um, was doing part of my, my grad school time was just to, to be there and, and work around and in there. And then I saw that they were advertising the show that sounded a lot like this immersive theater company that I had heard about from London. And um, I was pretty excited. And then I saw their name and realized that they were making their American debut right <laughs> in my backyard. Oh, wow. So I, I called them up and told them I would sweep floors for them as long as they wanted me to. And... Um, they said, sure, come by. And then the first several days was a lot of like crap work. And when they saw I wasn't going to leave, then it started getting more exciting. And then I worked with them for a couple years on their production of Sleep No More and came back to school and then just got back out to see them again, actually just last year when I was on sabbatical in London. Um, that is very cool. Do you have any goals that you have for the school year for the students? Is there a place you'd like to get to with them that, uh, and with the programs are kind of a, I don't want to say a plateau, but an aim where it would be like very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, the goal I told them on Friday is that my goal is that every student in the high school takes part in a theater production before they graduate. Oh, nice. At least how, that, many, that's, how many students that's just, sky dream. How, uh, there's a thousand kids okay. give, give at the high school. Just to give an idea of how many you would yeah. be trying to get in the door. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll never happen, but that'll never keep me from not wanting it to happen. <laughs> so, but in a more realistic sense of goals, there is that sense of just like the bigger, the wider, the tent, the better. So really getting new students involved is a big goal, helping them find this as a home. Um, but then I also think we do have some lofty, I think, artistic, um, goals, especially for Laramie Project, um, what we want that to look and feel like. Uh, we're also hoping that it can be part of a pretty big um, kind of social education and, and work of advocacy across the school. So 
one of our goals is to to enable that and we're we're in process with that too mm. Mm, wow. And then your own your own personal work. I mean, it sounds a lot like you managed to integrate a lot of that into the summer and the student programs. But um, what else do you have going on that's uh, neither of those? It's your own work. Sure. Um, well, I'd say that that integration, for one, is kind of intentional. One, I like using my own students in some of those pieces. And that's worth um, noting because I think that's so exciting for both of us. Right. Um, but it also is a way of saying that school and camp also become like weird little labs for the work that I make outside. Like I can almost like pay an idea out with them and then take it out further. <laughs> so for outside of school, um, I think the things coming up for me, um, this, uh, this, what will probably end up being an app. Um, the idea is to create a play that doesn't need any live actors, uh, for the Emily Dickinson museum. Um, and basically take the performance that I'm putting up this fall and almost like find a way of putting it in a bottle so that the museum can own it and deploy it at will. I also just want to see if I can like make it work like that. Can I make an app that's really a theater piece? So that's, that's probably the next big project that'll take some time. And then further down the road, um, there's a piece that I'm very interested in making, uh, with one of the, the area hill towns that kind of, is a piece almost in about the town itself um, and kind of would weave and grow around the town. So that that's something that's going to take a little bit longer, but that's, that's been on my mind a lot. Mm. And those, and when would you want to be, you know, implementing those? Oh, uh, the, well, the Dickinson piece is going to go into work next, a year from now. This is like the research like portion. And then like the, the earnest work will be a year from now. Um, and then we'll see about the rest. Um, there's also another immersive show that I did recently uh, in Turner's Falls that we remounted um, at the start of the summer. And it feels like something that might come back again. So that also is kind of in the future, mm. um, giving that a home again. And what one, what's that one about? Um, that was a piece called Deus Ex Machina. It was... Uh, and is a theater piece about the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls, which was a, a theater built as a 1920s vaudeville house. And then it evolved into any number of things, a movie house. It got taken over by uh, a bunch of hippies in the 70s and turned it into a commune. And then it became a theater again, and then it changed ownership. So as this wild and varied history. And so the, the piece is about the history of that theater and kind of the ghosts in the walls. And it's also kind of an ode to the world of making theater. Um, the audiences get to go through it in small groups and go everywhere from backstage to the balconies to the makeup rooms and kind of run into these kind of denizens of this place and get to see all this stuff that usually a lay audience member doesn't get to see, like the magic of an actor putting on makeup or watching a performer from the wings. Like those kinds of things start to become the vocabulary of the show. Are there drawbacks to that kind of theater? I mean, it's not common, and yeah, and there's crowd management things. Sure. Yeah, there are definitely drawbacks. Um, it has a lot of challenges that a stage play doesn't have. Um, the more work you make like this, the more you realize how controlled, like an, to an obsessive level, a traditional stage play is, which is wonderful. Um, but that's what it is. You're in this nice, clean, flat box with all these outlets and connectors and safeties and da 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 da. It's all very linear. And um, here, you really have to tame a space, um, both artistically but also in terms of safety. Mm. So, 
And then you have to think about an audience navigating that space safely. So some of those just kind of ground level challenges that you don't even have to think about in a regular play take up a lot of your initial time and work like that. So that's, that's a foundational challenge. And then there is the question of, do people want to come see something like this? Or would they rather just be able to sit in a chair and, and be entertained? And, and what do you find? Is it a hard sell? Not that hard of a sell. Um, and that <laughs> audiences that come to it will do the selling to their friends. So we found what's worked here to build an audience for immersive theater in the Valley is to get some key people in and make sure they get a good chance to see them talk about it with us and then trust that they'll tell other people and then let it network out. And then our audiences seem to find the piece or the piece finds the audience in a more natural way. So that's been pretty good. I think there's always room for growth. I'm hoping that there's more and more. Does video marketing help at all? Because some of this stuff seems very experiential and like maybe, I don't know, seems like it would be viral for some of it. I think it's getting more useful, um, that, that kind of a medium, simply because the word immersive now, for one, is such like a, a kind of buzzword. I think so many people want, you know, an experience, you know, over than like a pitch. Mm. Um, so experiential, you know, style theater um, now is a more well-known phenomenon. It's just a more common vocabulary, I think, in a lot of advertising and marketing. So that means like a video of this kind of stuff is drawing better. But a few years ago, it just looked really abstract, I think, to a lot of eyes. Now there's a language to understand it. Mm. So there's two ways to say this, and, and either you can pick either one of them. So Great. one of them is to ask, like, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Although my sense is that you're not. Um, <laughs> so you can avoid that one if you want. But what would you do if you had, I don't know, unlimited time, unlimited money? What, where would you go with this? Um, I would love to explore scale. Um, if I had unlimited time, money, and was feeling super fearless, um, I would love to explore scale. I would like to build a town. Mm. You know, I would like to do something like that or and and have a kind of um, evolving storyline that could unfold over durational time. I, mean, um, I would love I immediately think of the Truman Show, but yeah, no, I, I, I am into that. I, I think that like that might not be far off. I was just seeing a um, I was just at Mass Mocha recently and was looking at the James Terrell exhibit, this this light and environmental designer. And he has been slowly building this massive kind of dome-shaped space um, for a series of light work. And it's at such a grand scale out in the desert. Um, and it, I feel like that's the kind of language I'd love to live in. Like, what would we like to really transport someone and, and help them to literally step into another world? Um, so that would be incredible. Um, on the flip side of that, I also have to say that I do. I have done a number of headphone-based pieces or ideas like this Dickinson work, and the reason why I love that is its intimacy um, and the interior landscape. and And this is something I really would credit Punch Drunk with um, the the verb relensing um, your 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 view on the world and how theater and theatrical work can relens your experiences. And the intimacy of that is really meaningful to me. So I think I'm interested in both ends of the spectrum. Like I would love to make more pieces of theater for one, for one person. Um, I would love to make giant environmental pieces. So I think those <laughs> ends are the, the worlds I want to live in. So can you speak to the, uh, so relens, R-E-L-E-N-S, is that what you're saying? So like, yeah. what does that mean? Um, well, it was, it was used, uh, I was talking with uh, the, one of the producers at Pondstrung, Colin Nightingale, and he kept using that word 
when we were taking a walk around a show that they had just put up in London last fall. And the show was formatted to take place all around the city of London um, with a lot of interaction um, along the way. And part of the challenge was that he, they weren't using a lot of actors for the piece. And so Colin said, our job isn't really to create a performance here um, for you to go discover, but to re-lens your experience. We want people that grew up in London their whole life to see it anew. Um, and when you have the right kind of prompts, um, sensory prompts, physical things, smells, sights, frames, um, even the action of moving or running, um, you know, anything that can reshape that, you pile that on enough um, and eventually the body can start to see things fresh or re-encounter them. And so I love that idea. Oh, okay. Yeah, that yeah. is beautiful. Um, yeah. Can you, would you ever be interested in having a company that just, you know, did this or did short and long form? Um, that, that's a timely question in a way because um, the, the deus ex machina, that production in the theater, was just remounted for a second time by about two-thirds of the original cast and then a new crew that came in. And between those two casts, it's about 30 people. And we found that we really, really like working with each other mm. and that we really like making this kind of work together. And that um, a lot of us spoke about like, wow, we feel like we finally found our people um, and we'd love to do this forever. Why can't we do this forever? <laughs> um, so there has been talk, I think, among that cohort of, well, should we start a proper company? Um, right. and make this a thing. Um, and for now I, I have to admit I'm resistant to that. I kind of don't want, um, too much of a label or on, on who we are, or what we do. I want us to live project by project. Cause I think that's really where the work is. And there's almost something like I, too many theater companies get so into the idea themselves and I'm just, I don't want that to be a distraction. I just want to make the work. Would you want to see this, um, expanded to uh you know uh universities or university department or um a, a school on its own do you think or um as an immersive work or i just mean uh immersive theater actually yeah yeah um yeah i i think so and there are some programs now that do it in fact the the uk education standards now um reference immersive theaters one of their strands within theater so um, to see America, uh, American schools uh, have that kind of sophistication, I would love that. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Um, it started with just all schools having a theater program to begin with. Right. But yeah. And I think a lot of college and university programs, yes, also. Um, the University of Massachusetts, uh, this last year, they did their first immersive theater piece. Um, and it was very exciting. It's one of their main stage pieces. And I was so glad. Um because I think there are a lot of incredible theater folks in the university world, but there's also a lot of people that have not changed in 20 years and theater has definitely changed the last 20 years. So this, I feel like could be very invigorating for a lot of departments. If for no other reason, just to remember that form is so essential to theater and it shouldn't be invisible. Right. Right. Do you document all this? And then have you ever thought about making any documentation into a curriculum? Um, Sharing it a bit. Yeah. Um, so I do a reasonable job of documentation. I don't do an amazing job, but um, I do make sure sure that I have good show photography. I'm not very interested in show video, by the way. I think that is something that I don't do very much intentionally. Um, but my own personal documents, like I love 
I love a good spreadsheet. So um, I keep good track of all my spreadsheets and paperwork and charts and figures, and those are very useful, all the framework stuff in a show. My research documentation is copious but sloppy. I don't think it's very well organized to use, like, here's my method of research to someone else. Mm. Um, but that, that raw material is there. But on the flip side, um, in a very practical way, yes, this fall actually I'm pitching a – devised immersive theater course at the high school with the goal of starting it next school year. So, mm. yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very literally thinking about curriculum. So devised immersive would mean teaching the kids how to create their own immersive theater. Is that what you're thinking? Or yeah, it would be a it? course in them making work um, and learning the form along the way that they would all be making pieces. Whoa. Well, that's very cool. Wow. Yeah. So, We'll see how that goes. Wow. Well, um, wow. Thank you for, for chatting with me today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else in this balance between work and community and creativity that, uh, I don't know, tell, I know one thing I ask people, what would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self, uh, that your naivete is a strength, um, and to plow forward. That's, that's what I'd tell him. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you, John Bechtold. Thanks for coming and chatting today. Yeah, a real pleasure. Thanks so much for queuing this up. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to thank John Bechtold for being with me today. I love the idea of a summer arts camp being Brigadoon and the extraordinary experience that immersive theater brings to audiences. Links to John's projects and more will be in the show notes. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9 to Thrive, and Facebook, at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>